The realest moments uh, in my whole life, the realest moments that I've had with God were in times of confession, forgiveness, and repentance. Um, as I look back at kind of my own spiritual journey, the moments where I was like, where I had full faith, and you know, to be honest, sometimes like the Christian life, there are, there are valleys and hills, and, and there are times where you doubt, and there are times where you trust. And I've had a lot of those, and, but when I look back and think those moments where I just had full faith, where God was like undeniable and I knew he was real 100% with like all my heart, it wasn't in times where I experienced miracles, which I have seen in the mission field and in church and in, with my own brother, if you guys know that story. The times where I felt God was most real was in times of confession and forgiveness, when I sought him for his mercy because of my sin and the weight of my sin. It was in those moments. And like that's really crazy as I think about it because that's what this series is really about. This series that we're in that we started a couple weeks ago, it's called Comeback Season, Comeback Season. And we're focusing on two key concepts and the key concepts are, the key concepts are forgiveness and repentance. Um, and in this, in this idea, Pastor Jonathan came up with this series idea, and the idea is in, in popular culture when there's a comeback season or a comeback, someone who was irrelevant is now suddenly relevant because of an album, because of a movie, because of something they did. They were once kind of irrelevant, nobody really thought about them, and then they became relevant again. And the other kind of way we can look at this idea of comeback is in terms of sports. When a team makes a comeback, they were in a losing position, but something shifts, and then they ultimately win the game. And so our hope and our heart and our desire through this series is that we would be kind of in a comeback season in two ways. Number one, that in like with sports, that you who may have been kind of in a down season spiritually would now shift into a season of winning spiritually in your life. And the second way is just like in pop culture, where God, who may have been irrelevant for you for a time, will now suddenly become relevant in your life. That he'll begin to, to matter more and be more at the center of your life. And the way we're trying to kind of initiate this shift, and there's a lot of ways to think about how we can do that, but the way we wanted to focus on this series for the last four weeks is on forgiveness and repentance. And again, for me, those were the times where I really experienced God in a real way. And so we covered a lot of material over the last three weeks, but these last two sermons are focused specifically on the idea of repentance. So I have a lot to get to that I want to uh, talk to you guys about. But I need to give kind of a quick recap. So last week, we defined what repentance was. And as kind of confusing as it can be, it's really simple. Repentance was about two things. It's about a change of mind and a change of direction. Repentance is when you saw one thing one way and you changed the way you thought about that thing, which is actually not that easy. And then that was followed up by a change of direction where you were going one way in your behaviors, in your actions, and then you took a turn. And you U-turned and you changed the direction of the way you were going. Repentance comes down to simply those two things. But what I really wanted to communicate last week to you guys was that repentance and this is key because a lot of people kind of get this mixed up. And, and the people, we don't really understand this correctly. And I want to share it one more time with you guys. Repentance does not atone for your sins. I said that last week. Repentance does not atone for your sins. 
Repentance is not necessarily about the sins you committed in the past and the bad things you did or the things that you struggled with yesterday. Repentance is not so much about going through the process so that you can be forgiven for the things you did. That's actually not what repentance is about. Because there's only one thing that atones for your sins, and that is Jesus That is the cross, that is his death and resurrection. That's what atones for your sins. Not your effort or the the, the feeling of feeling bad or the trying really hard to stop sinning. That does not atone for your sins. And the, the way I put it last week is that repentance is not really about salvation for our souls. Repentance is more about salvation from ourselves. Meaning it's about who you are becoming tomorrow and down the line. And repentance is initiated And kind of begins with the sins of our past, yes. But it's not about the sins of the past. It's about who you are becoming. And this was the key point last last week, is that two, two points. Repentance is your part in the process of becoming who God already sees in you. And on the flip side of that, repentance protects you and your loved ones from the worst version of yourself. And let me unpack that a little bit. What I'm saying here is that when God looks at you and the way God defines you and the identity he sees in you, it's not based on your past or your present. We see this in scripture. It's based on your future and who you are becoming and who he is turning you into be. That's why the followers of Jesus in scripture are never called sinners. Sinners are always referred to people outside the faith before they enter into a relationship with Jesus, following Jesus as their Lord and Savior. When people enter into that relationship, even though people do sin, the writers of the New Testament never called those people sinners. And instead, he uses words like to describe the people of God as saint, blameless, holy priesthood. Now, that doesn't mean they're perfect, that doesn't mean they don't make mistakes, and that doesn't mean that you don't, but your identity, the way God sees you, is not based on the sins of your past or the sins of your present, but who he sees in you is based on who you are becoming in the future. That's why he calls you saint, because one day you will be a saint in him, and you are a saint right now, and you're becoming a saint. You are blameless right now, and you're going through the process of becoming blameless. And repentance is our part in being a part of that. And for me, that's so compelling, right? It's so compelling to think that repentance is what I can do, my role in the process to allow God to transform my heart, to become a different person. But the flip side of that is, like, really compelling for me. That's where, I don't know, part of me is like, yeah, that's really why I want to repent. Because repentance protects you. And your loved ones, your children, your your family, your closest friends, repentance protects you and them from you becoming the worst version of yourself. And we talked about how honestly, if we're really honest, we all have a capacity for great evil. We all can do really, really bad, messed up things. But repentance is how God will shape us and change us to make sure we never, we never get there. So that's what we talked about last week, kind of this, the motivation and the definition of repentance. Today, the focus is on how to repent. What do we actually do when we enter into the process of repentance? And to be honest, there's not a lot in the Bible written about the mechanics of repentance and like the inner workings and how it really works. So uh, I I kind of study this and I kind of put this thing together and I I think it is faithful to what what we understand about repentance. But in order to make this really, really real and really relevant, uh, Kalia mentioned it at the beginning of the worship, I assigned homework, and we sent it out 
in the email and we sent, put on social media as well. The homework was for you to pray and ask God, what sin, what struggle do you want me to repent from in my life? All right, because, I mean, we got a lot, right? You got a lot of problems. I know you. You guys got a lot of problems, okay? A lot of things to work on. But what God, well, God, what do you want? What's the one thing you really want me to repent from in this season of life? And I wanted you to think about that, hear from God, and then bring that and keep that in your mind today. Now, if you didn't, shame on you, because Kalia did it, which is awesome. She's our high, one of our high schoolers. She spent that time. Just kidding, no shame. But if you didn't, you have a moment right now to think about it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put on the screen a list of sins, possible sins that you can repent from, all right? I don't know your sins, but I want you guys to take a moment. And, and here are just some suggestions. And I got some of the oldies, but the goodies, right, like Ten Commandments. I made it kind of simple. I used um, Seven Deadly Sins, which is not really in the Bible. Kind of is, but not really. And a couple other ones that I want to throw in there. So I'm going to put up a list of sins, and maybe one of these is yours, all right? So as th think about what, what sin do you feel like God really wants you to um, repent from? And, and here's the trick. When I put this list of sins, if you don't have one in your mind and I put this list of sins and then your eyes go to one, that's probably the one. That's probably the one, okay? All right. And I have two that are really interesting. I wonder if anyone goes there. But here's a list of possible sins. All right. Ten commandments, idolatry, adultery, coveting, murder, stealing, dishonoring parents. Mm, mm, mm. Any dissent? Okay. Uh, seven deadly sins. We've got pride, greed, gluttony, lust, laziness or sloth, wrath, envy. A couple other ones that are not really part of it but are in the Bible. Sorcery, hostility, division, gossip, slash slander. And these are the not in the Bible but pretty bad. Not putting grocery carts back in the parking lot. Okay, you got to repent from that if that's your sin. Or Mike hogging at karaoke. These are two things that really, really bug me. Again, they're not in the Bible but these are pretty bad things, right? Amen. Amen. Yeah, no? Okay. But look at this list and think, okay, what of these things, if I didn't take the time this week to think about it, which of these is kind of my struggle? Which of these does God want me to repent from today? And what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about kind of the mindset and the kind of the mechanics and what we're going to do in repentance. And then at the end, I'm going to share a prayer with you, and you're going to have to work through it. Okay? And we're going to take a little bit of time to have a season of repentance in this church as well. And I know that sounds kind of like weird and I don't know, like maybe depressing, but it's not. Like repentance is not a depressing thing. Repentance is a moment of freedom that God wants to bring to your life. So um, hopefully you have something in your mind and throughout the message, maybe you can think of it. So with that, let's pray and get into to the rest of today's message. Father in heaven, oh, gracious God, I believe you want to do something here. You want to do something that only you can do, that I can't do, that nobody else can do. So Holy Spirit, come fill this place up. And bring us to a place, Father. Maybe today is the day we finally find victory over that sin or that struggle we've been struggling with for years. Let me pray. Amen. I want to begin by asking the question, trying to understand what goes on in the mind of the repentant person. Okay? For a person who is truly repentant, before we can talk about what do we do, we have to know what a repentant person is thinking. What is going on in the mind of the repentant? Like I said earlier, it's kind of strange. As big of a deal as repentance is in the Bible, there's not a lot about the inner workings of repentance. It's like everyone just knew what it meant to repent. And so when they said repent, they're like, sure, I totally know exactly what you're talking about. But for us, removed thousands of years removed from the original writers of the Bible, it's hard to really understand what, how does repentance work, what are we actually supposed to do. But I want to, um, I want to share 
with you guys a couple verses that help us to understand what is going on in the mind of the repentant. Now, one of the most famous kind of examples of repentance that scholars believe in the Bible is Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is a psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. So if you're not familiar with that, real quick, you know, um, Cliff Notes version. King David, who is the king of Israel, he's like the greatest king of Israel in Israelite history. One day he saw a woman named Bathsheba. He, he liked her. He's like, oh man, I got to have her. And so he actually commits adultery with her and he sleeps with her and he gets her pregnant. And because of that, he lies and does all these shady things and ends up murdering her husband Uriah. So that's like a big deal, right? Like that's not small stuff. That's a big deal. He, he committed adultery and then he committed murder. So after that, his homie Nathan, his homie Nathan comes to him and Nathan tells him that, hey man, what you did was wrong. This is a sin. God is very upset with you. And in that moment, he realizes what he had done. And after that is when he writes Psalm 51 and when he is repentant. And so scholars say like this is kind of one of the best examples of what repentance looks like. And I want to just focus on the first six verses to help us understand again what's going on in the mind of the repentant. So Here's how, he begins his, uh, here's how he begins his song. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your great unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sins, wash me from my guilt, purify me from my sin. So I want you guys to look at this verse and think, what is he, how does he begin this? What is on his mind as he begins this psalm of repentance? His first words are, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love love. And I think that's really important to, to, to point out. I don't know what you guys think of when you, if you confess your sin to God, I don't know if we always begin with that. We usually begin with the sin. Maybe we begin with, I'm sorry. God, I did this. But for him, when he begins his prayer of repentance, it begins with his, God's mercy and God's unfailing love. And so I think this is important for us to note that what's going on in the mind of David, what's going on in the mind of the repentant in Psalm 51, 1 and 2, the first things on his mind are God's love and God's compassion. And I think what's really cool is that even though, like I said, there's not a lot about repentance in the Bible, there are two verses written by the Apostle Paul where he talks about repentance. And it totally matches up with what David is talking about as he's going through this process of repentance. See, what, what, what Paul says in Romans 2, 4, he says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness, his love and compassion, his grace and mercy, is intended to lead you to repentance? So the Apostle Paul, who also did a lot of bad things, when he thinks about repentance, the first thing he says is, in the mind of the rep repentant is God's love and his compassion. It is God's love and his mercy and his compassion. The second thing that is going on in the mind of the repentant comes in the few verses after that. We're going to read three to six. David again. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. So if you look at this section, what is going on in his mind? It's no longer God's love and compassion. 
It's something else. What he's doing in verses 3 to 6 are it's confession and sorrow. Confession and sorrow. So in the beginning, he has God's love and compassion in his mind. Then he has his own confession and his sorrow over his sin. And again, Paul talks about this. Another kind of like pre, preemptive, pre, pre-repentant kind of thinking. He says this in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So in the mind of the repentant are two things. God's love and then also this confession and this sorrow for sin. And I do have to nuance this a little bit. I, I kind of explain this a little bit. Paul says that there are two things that we can experience when we sin. Godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. And one leads to repentance and the other leads where? Death. So maybe we should know the difference. Maybe we should figure out what's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. I think a better way to understand the sense of godly sorrow or, or godly guilt as it is written in other translation is the idea of conviction. Conviction. In that I know I sinned. I understand my sin. I know I messed up. It's this acknowledgement, full, deep understanding of the sin that we committed. But it is not shame. Godly sorrow is conviction. Worldly sorrow is shame. So I want you guys to, to know that there is a difference between conviction and shame. If you experience shame after your sin, I want you to know that is not from God. If you did the thing, whatever that is that you've done maybe a hundred or a million times again and again, and you struggle again and again, and if the result or the feeling that you have, the emotion you have is shame, and it, wants to, it makes you want to run away and hide from God or hide from the people of God or hide from your loved ones, that is shame. That's not from God. What is from God is godly sorrow, this idea of conviction, where you know exactly what you did, you understand your sin, and it is going to lead you back to God. So in the mind of the repentant is not shame. It is conviction. It is the love and compassion of God. And here's the thing. It's not one or the other, and it's not one first and then one second. It's all this all mixed together. You see, in the mind of the repentant is this tension between God's love for me, his unfailing love for me, his mercy, but also I done messed up. And I realized what I'd done. And I broke the law and I hurt God and I hurt other people. I know what I did. But also God loves me and he has unfailing love and he's merciful. But I messed up. It's like this weird tension loop conflicting ideas that is in the mind of the repentant. It's, it's like you're, you're viewing your conviction, your sin in the light of God's kindness. But at the same time, you view God's kindness in light of your conviction of sin. Right? It's like this weird opposite thing. But it's in that mindset that true, godly repentance is born. So I want to begin there. As we try to seek to understand how to repent, and before we even enter into repentance, that's what I want in your minds. As you think about the sin that I've asked you to, to think about. Not shame. Love. Compassion. Conviction. Now, I want to move to another story or another example that scholars believe is kind of one of the greatest examples of repentance as well. And this is kind of a, an added point I think we need to think about. The other kind of um, 
story in the Bible of, of true repentance is a story of Jonah and the Ninevites. If you guys don't know this story, Jonah is a prophet sent to, the, to Nineveh to tell them that God is going to destroy them if they don't change their ways. Um, and so he goes to Nineveh, this terrible, terrible place of, full of violence and oppression and injustice and hate and just this terrible, terrible place. And he preaches like the worst sermon ever, okay? Like this is his sermon, Jonah 3.4. This is his sermon. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, this is his sermon, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's all he says. But to be honest, when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, this is the worst sermon, but maybe actually this is the best sermon ever because the response to the sermon is tremendous. Because what happens after these just few words is the entire city repents. Like, dude, I've never done that. Like, I've never been able to do anything like that. But Jonah speaks these words and the entire city repents. And look what happens in a few verses after this. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Now, I think this is really important that all throughout like the Old Testament, when people repented, it was always associated with sackcloth and ashes, which is like a weird thing. Sackcloth and ashes. And, you know, I kind of tried to look into, hey, what's the meaning? I was like hoping to find some really cool, like little, little unique thing about this that would really like open it up, but I really couldn't. And even in the Bible, there's really not a commandment from God where he says, hey, when you repent, make sure you also put on sackcloth and, and also put ashes on your head, because that's what they would do. Sackcloth was this like weird, uncomfortable fabric made out of goat hair, and then they would wear it, and it was like scratchy and uncomfortable. It's kind of like, you know when you guys have the tag in your shirt that's too long, and then it itches your, and it's really, really itchy? It's like that everywhere in your whole body, Right? Um, and, you know, people, it can be translated as like burlap sacks. If you imagine those kind of like really rough um, brown sacks and stuff, like it's wearing that for a time. And then they would take ashes or dust and they would put it on their heads or they would just like sit in, in dust. And this is what's like what they would do. And I was like, man, there's got to be something really cool about this. I found nothing. I don't know. It just like just says do it and just people just did it. But I think what, what is lost here for us, that what we've lost as I look at this and think about this, is the Israelites understood something really important about kind of the spiritual life. And we often forget that. And it's especially important when we think about this in terms of things like forgiveness and repentance and confession. See, what, what they realized, and, and maybe it's not they realized, like God taught them this, is that inner experiences need to be connected to outward expressions. Inner experiences, spiritual experiences inside need to be connected to outward experiences, right? Like, there's no meaning in the, the, the sackcloth, right? Like, there's nothing special about that. There's nothing special about the ashes and dust, but it was a part of having an inner experience reflected by an outward expression. And I think this is really key, and we've, we've lost this a lot in our spiritual lives as Christians in the church, right? Like, church is a, like God and the Bible and Christianity, it's a thing in here, and it's a thing in here, it's not a thing out here. You know what I'm saying? It's something we think about, it's something we feel, but it's not something we like do in order to grow. It's oftentimes just a mental or emotional thing. And so when it comes to forgiveness and repentance, that's often what it is, right? 
Because when we come to God with our sin, what do you usually do? You pray and you say, God, please forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for the things I've done. You don't even pray. Amen. And then you move on with your life and you do the next thing. It's an inner experience, but there's no outward expression connected to it. Maybe that's possibly why we struggle to grow and transform. So the Israelites knew whenever you have an inner experience with God, it needs to be connected to an outward expression. So what you have to do is after church today or maybe tomorrow, go to Amazon, buy some sackcloth, okay, and make sure you deliver it prime to your house because you probably sit and you got to put that on right away. They actually sell it. I looked it up. They actually sell it. It's not a shirt, but you can make a shirt out of it, and it looks really, really uncomfortable. You can do that, yes. You can do that, but maybe that's not the most culturally transferable, like, you know, idea in Scripture. But I do think that there is a modern version of sackcloth and ashes that we can all employ. There is something that we can do, an outward expression that expresses an inner experience that is similar to what sackcloth and ashes are supposed to be. And if you kind of listen to the, the text that I read in Jonah, you probably know what it is. It's fasting. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes were often all lumped together. And I think sa- uh, fasting is kind of a modern-day version that we could do that, um, that, that kind of reflects the spirit of the sackcloth and ashes. Now, what's fasting? If only we had talked about fasting in this church. If only we had a sermon series about fasting to understand all the things about fasting. Oh, right, we did. Yay. So this is really cool. We did not plan this, okay? This is not like a, okay, we're going to do fasting, and then next we're going to do this, like, repentance thing, and then we're going to connect. It wasn't like that. Um, Just recently, right before this series, we had a whole series, a three-part series on fasting, and, and, and it's just so cool how it connected to this, this message, how, how a way we can outwardly express the inner experience of confession and forgiveness and repentance is through fasting. Right, so it says in, in verse 7 of Jonah, this is the proclamation he issued, that's the king. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let them, let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on their God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. So fasting is, is a great way to connect the inner experience of seeking forgiveness, confessing, and trying to repent in your life from a sin. Fasting is kind of the best way. Um, so since we ended that series a couple weeks ago, I've been fasting once a week. And um, it was, it's been really good. Okay, it's been really hard. But it's also been really good. And, and let me tell you guys kind of like what the main thing that I experienced and learned through just, just a few weeks of fasting um, is that when I'm fasting, um, what, I, what, I, what I began to realize, like I become much more aware of like the present when I'm fasting. Like, I'm not, I don't think so much about, like, what's happening. It's like, for some reason, as I'm hungry and have this constant state of hunger, I'm just very mindful of the moment and, like, what's happening right now. You know, so that's cool. But, but the way that it has translated to my spiritual life is because, because I'm more present in the moment for some reason because of this, like, constant state of hunger, I'm also then more present and aware of, like, kind of the spiritual nature of life. Like, that God is there. And he is alive and he loves me. And I'm just like, I, I'm aware of that things are spiritual. You know, it's kind of weird. And I really can't explain it except that's just what I've been experiencing. And the cool thing is as I'm hungry and I'm like, like I want to eat, it, it, it draws me to the moment. And then the spiritual, the reality of spiritual life 
is able to move from the background of my mind where it often is, and it gets brought up to the foreground of my life. And, like, that's an awesome thing. And so with that, like, God's love and his compassion, like we talked about, but also my conviction and my sorrow and my sin, that all that stuff that stays in the back where I, like, try not to think about it or I'm so distracted, that all gets brought to the front for some reason when I'm hungry and I'm fasting. And so I was like, man, when I read this and I thought about sackcloth and ashes and fasting, I totally see how fasting can be a great companion to the process of repentance and seeking forgiveness from God. Because I think today our world, like, I don't know how our world tries to deal with sin and and the mess-ups we make. You know, I I think for the most part, the way we try to deal with our sins and and stuff is through repression, right? Like, I didn't do anything. Just just shove it down, deep down. Or, Or you justify, I didn't do anything wrong. Or you pretend like nothing ever happened. Or you vent it, but who do you vent it to? You vent it to strangers online, you know what I mean? Like you vent it to people in comment sections to talk about things and, and you go on Reddit and, and you vent in these ways and you like, your anger is taken out on these people that you don't even know and it's a completely not healing kind of process. But fasting is different. And so I can see how this could be such a great way to, 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 to outwardly express the inner experience of our sin and confession and forgiveness. So let me quickly summarize where we're at before we get to the kind of last section. The mind of the repentant is on God's kindness and our conviction of sin. And the inner experience of repentance needs to be connected to an outward expression of repentance. And fasting, again, a great way to do that. If you have another way to kind of like outwardly express your sorrow for your sin and stuff, that's awesome. And you should do that and you should tell me about it. But, but if you don't have one, fasting could be a great way to do that. Now, to understand the mechanics of fasting, we have to understand that fasting is about two things, right? It was about change of mind and change of direction. So what I'm going to do in this next section, we're going to talk about both of those things, and I'm just going to give you guys two questions in each of those areas to help you change your mind about something and change your direction about something, okay? So as we look at the first part, when we change our mind, which, guys, if we're honest, this is really hard. Like, when's the last time you actually changed your mind about something, you know? Like, something that's not, you know, like, oh, this, this, this restaurant was not good, but now I think it's good. But something real, like, about your values and what you really believe about, like, reality and God. Like, when's the last time someone actually changed your mind? It's a really, really difficult thing to do. But if we're seeking to repent, we need to ask the questions that will lead to a change of mind. Here's the first question. What lie did I believe? When I committed that sin, when I did the thing that I wasn't supposed to do, what is the lie that I believed that led me to do that? I don't know if it's like, I believe that that thing would feel good or feel really good, and so that's why I did it. Or or maybe the lie is, I believe that my thing, whatever it was, is more important than someone else's thing. I don't know. What is the lie? I I believe and understand that as we look at Scripture, Satan's weapons, the devil's weapons against us are in the form of lies. Jesus has this great line from John chapter 8 where he like, it's a groundbreaking kind of mind-blowing understanding of like the devil. He says this about him. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, but there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he's a liar and the father of lies. Most likely, The root of the sin or the mistake or the problem or the struggle was a lie that you believed. 
So as we, if we are seeking to understand or seeking to repent and change our minds, we have to identify what is the lie that I believe. Is it a lie about myself? Is it a lie about other people? Is it a lie about the world and how the world works? Is it a lie about God? What is the lie that I believe that led me to the sin that I committed? If we don't start there, we're never going to change our mind because what we're going to think is what I believed was true. And that's where the sin came from. What is the lie that I believe? And the second, pretty simple, what biblical truth can I replace it with? So what is the lie that I believed? And then what is the biblical truth? And I wanted to add that word biblical in there on purpose because it's really easy to come up with whatever truth you want. But we have to root this change of mind into in Scripture. Right? The truth that we replace the lie with must be one that is rooted in the word of God. Because then it is really true. So what is the lie that I believed and what truth, what biblical truth can I replace it with? So real simple. That's how we're going to begin to change our mind. So when you sin, when you struggle, and whatever sin you have in your mind, you're going to think about that. Okay, why did I do that, right? We're not just going to ask for forgiveness and move on. No, we're going to deal with the sin. We're going to deal with the mistake and say, what is the lie that I believe that led me to do that? And then it's going to be hard. It's not going to be really simple. It's not going to come to you just like in a moment. You're going to have to struggle with it. You're going to think and think and think and pray. And you're going to realize, oh, oh, deep down, this is the lie. And you may have to go layer after layer and scratch and dig deep to finally uncover the lie that you believe. And then look into the word of God and find out what is the truth what does God say about this? What does God say about me or the world or about other people that I can then replace that with. Only then are we going to be able to begin to change our minds to actually overcome like the sins that we're talking about and repent. The second, as we deal with change of direction, I'm going to make an assumption, okay? And I hope you are not offended by this assumption. But if you are, sorry. I still think it's true. Here's my assumption as we think about change of direction. In the moment your willpower is garbage, is what I believe about you. And I believe about myself. That in the moment, when I say in the moment, is like when you are at the end, right, and you have to make that decision to do the thing and to, to commit the sin and you want to do the thing or you want to eat the thing or, or whatever. In that moment, your willpower is garbage, is what I believe. That in that moment when it's right in your face and you've been thinking about it and you've been wanting it and you've been thinking how great it's going to be or in that moment where it's an instant and you just reacted, like you don't even have time to employ your willpower. I think my assumption is that in that moment, your willpower is garbage. And for some of you, some of you in that moment, your willpower is hot garbage and you got none and you have no willpower. You don't have the discipline to stop yourself in the moment. Let's be honest. That's a lot of us, right? That's how I feel about myself. Like, I, I don't have the willpower to just overcome my sin. Like, I can't just, I'm going to stop doing this. How many times have you guys tried that? I'm just going to stop doing this. I'm just going to start doing this. How's that worked out? All right, I, I just feel like this is my assumption that your willpower in the moment, that's key, in the moment is hot garbage for a lot of you guys. So, in order to begin changing direction, I want to introduce the idea of a guardrail to you. And this is something that I heard in a sermon by Andy Stanley, a, a guardrail. When we think about guardrails, talking about the things in, on the road, right? When you're driving and they have those, those pieces of wood and metal that, that kind of like protect you, think of the guardrail. When we think about guardrails, they're usually in three different areas. They're on bridges, 
And they're on bridges so they keep you from driving off the bridge. They're on medians where they divide the two lanes so that you don't go into oncoming traffic. And the third is on curves like on mountain roads. And these guardrails, what are they? they? Right? They're there to protect you, right? A guardrail is a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. So I want you to think about this. We're going to talk about, in order to change our direction, I want you to think about guardrails. Guardrails for your life. And the thing that's important to understand about a guardrail is a guardrail is never in the danger zone, Right? If you think about a curve on the mountain road, the guardrail is on the road where it's safe. It's not off the cliff. That would make no sense. Our guardrail is always in the safe area in order to prevent you or the car from entering into the dangerous area. You guys with me? So as we think about change of directions, you need to think and figure out what guardrails do I need to set up? And these are things that you need to set up, boundaries you need to set up in your life in safe areas to prevent you from even getting close to the edge. Right, so a great example of this, if your sin, the, the, the sin that God wants you to repent from, if it's gossip, you can't just be like, I'm just going to stop gossiping. I can do that. That's easy. I'll just stop gossiping. Right? And, and, and you may have every intention and you may have every desire to stop gossiping, but when you're in that moment, it's so much harder isn't it? So instead of saying, I'm just going to stop gossiping, a guardrail is there are these certain people that when I'm there, I tend to gossip. That's usually what we like to talk about. So a guardrail is I will stop spending those times with those people, right? That's safe. You're not even going to get to a place where you need to use willpower. You just won't be in that environment. And sometimes a guardrail will require a change in relationship with certain people. And that's hard. I'm not saying this is easy. If your struggle is with something like sexual immorality or, or, or pornography, right, you can't just be like, I'm going to stop. I'm just going to stop. No, no, you need to set up a guardrail because your willpower, again, is garbage. And so instead of saying, I'm just going to stop watching pornography, what you do is I'm going to set up a guardrail. I'm going to move my computer to the living room. I'm going to keep my door always open. I'm never going to close my door. Like, that's just going to be a policy of mine because that's a guardrail to keep me safe from even getting to the edge because when I'm at that edge, my willpower is not there. Right, so so these are guardrails. So you got to think about, as you want to change your direction, think about what guardrails do I need to set up? And the second one, the second question, if you want to begin to change your direction in your life, this one is hard, is who will I talk to about this? I talked about this last week. The power of sin is in its silence. The power that sin has over you is so much stronger when you are silent about it and you don't talk to people about it. You hide it. You don't want people to know. And I get why we feel that way. But if you were to confess it to a person and tell just one person the power that that sin has over you will decrease, I promise you that. And so as we're trying to change the direction of our lives, especially in relation to this particular sin, we have to think about who will I talk to about this? And yes, you talk to God, but you can't just talk to God. You have to find a real, live human being. Don't talk, don't talk to someone online, right? Don't talk to a stranger you've never met and type it. No, no. You need to sit face to face with some person and tell them, listen, I've been really struggling. I struggle with this, and I really, really want to stop. 
Find someone who loves you, who accepts you, a spiritual person you respect that you trust and confess into. These are the ways that if we employ them, we're actually beginning to be able to transform. God will give us the power to, to change and will become that, that person he sees in us. So real quick, before we get to the last thing, if we, wanted, if we want to repent, we change our minds, so we ask the question, what lie did I believe? Then we ask the question, what biblical truth can I replace it with? When we seek to change direction, what guardrails do I need to set up in my life? And who will I talk to about this? Who can I talk to about this? That's how we can begin to repent. And so as we close here, I want to share with you guys a prayer of repentance. And to be honest, this is not in the Bible because, like, there really isn't one. But it's a prayer of repentance that, as, as I kind of understood uh, this, this idea of repentance, this is kind of where my mind went. Where I feel like this is kind of the prayer that we want to have. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through it. And we're going to put this on our, our email. We're going to put this in our social media again if you forget because, you know, you, you may not be thinking about it. You may not be able to remember. But I want to share with you guys a prayer of repentance. And this is where the moment where I need you to, like, call up the sin, right? Like, what is that sin? What is that thing that I'm struggling with? Whether it's idolatry or adultery or gossip or anger or wrath or envy, whatever that thing is. Like, this is the moment to like, kind of bring it up. And I want to walk you through this prayer. And this is what I want you to do when you commit that sin and when you want to repent from it. I want to offer you this prayer. And you don't have to because, like, it's not commanded this is not from the Bible. Part, some of it is, but it's not all from the Bible. And if you have your own version of it, awesome. Do what works for you. But you got to hit kind of these elements. So here's a prayer of repentance that I want to share with you guys that maybe we can use in times of repentance and confession. And so again, kind of recall that sin, whatever that thing is in your mind. And you can just listen to it right now or you can like engage in it right now in your mind and, and really think about kind of going through this right now. But here's a prayer. Have mercy on me, Heavenly Father, because of your unfailing love. Because of your compassion, I can come to you with the reality of my sin. Right? So remember, this is the mind of the repentant, God's love, compassion, but our conviction and sorrow all kind of mixed up together. So because of your compassion, I can come to you with the reality of my sin. And then in this moment, you confess the sin specifically. This is when you say, God, I did this. And this is the thing that I did again and again. This is my sin. I did it to this person. I did it when this happened. So confess. You confess the sin specifically. And you take kind of whatever you need time to, to kind of like re-enter that moment where you made that mistake. But you confess the sin specifically to God. And after you do that, God, I want to repent. I think it's important to use the languages, the language that he gave us in scripture. I want to repent. And this is where we begin to deal with the sin. Change my mind and thoughts. This is the lie that I believed. And then you explain the lie to God. This is what I thought. This is what I, I thought. And this is how I realized that it's wrong. This is the lie about myself or other people, or the world or, or my values or my family, my brother or sister about what's right and wrong, this is the lie that I believed. You explain that lie. And you tell God, but I don't believe that anymore. This is now what I believe. And then you explain the truth. The truth from scripture that you've, you've heard. Maybe something you heard in a sermon or read in the Bible or something. God, I know this to be true. 
I know that was wrong. This is what I know to be true because you said this, because you showed this, because you modeled this. You explained the truth. And then we go, change my direction. Here's what I'm gonna do now. And you explain to God the guardrails that you're gonna set up. God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not spend time with those people. I'm gonna physically move these things around in my life. I'm going to change my schedule in this way. And these are the guardrails that I'm gonna set up in my life so I don't even get close because I know my willpower don't work. And here is who I will talk to about this. And so in this moment, you name the person, name why you're choosing that person. Because, oh, because you know, they, I trust them, because they're spiritual, because I respect them. And then you have to mention when you will talk to them. Like, you can't be like, I'm going to talk to them sometime. No, you say, God, I'm going to talk to so-and-so because of this, and I'm going to talk to them next week. I'm going to talk to them next Thursday next Thursday or next Wednesday after small group or, or after school or, or whenever, I'm going to talk to them. This is when I'm going to talk to them. We're going to go get coffee. We're going to go grab a smoothie and we're going to sit and we're going to talk. This is who I'm going to talk to. And you end this prayer like this. Because of your grace and mercy, I pray and repent in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've never prayed a prayer like this. I've never confessed my sin like this, but I feel like, oh man, if I did, it would really cause me to engage in the reality of my sin, but also the reality of God's love and mercy. And so we're gonna share this with you online and we'll put it out there in case you guys will forget. But I want you to work through this prayer when you commit your sins and when you mess up, you go to God and bring this prayer to him if you want and if it is your desire to repent. Now, as we close, I just want you to understand what this sermon series is really about. This sermon is not about behavior modification, okay? This, sin, this, this sermon is not about sin management so that you can just, like, do things better. That's not why we're talking about this. That's not why we want you to have a comeback season. There's a story. When Jesus goes to eat with a leper that he healed, it was a Pharisee. His name was Simon. And he's at his house, and he's eating dinner. And then in that moment... Uh, where he's having dinner with this guy, this woman, this adulterous, sinful woman that everyone knows is sinful, comes into the room and she shows, she literally pours out her love for Jesus through the, through the, the pouring out of this expensive perfume on his feet, on his hair, and she wipes and cleans his feet with her and she's weeping because she's received this forgiveness from God. Like she knew her sin. She had that conviction, but she also had that shame. But we have to understand that she has this moment where Jesus offers her her, her forgiveness and compassion and grace and so she responds in this way. And then, and then people are murmuring and people are like, I don't know about this, this is weird. And then Simon, the host, who is also saved from a, a, a terrible illness, has no feelings of compassion for this woman. And then Jesus says something in Luke 7 that is so powerful. And this is the real reason why that we do this series. He says to her, Simon, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. And he says this, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. This is why we're preaching this series. Because as we feel like we are not forgiven for much, the love we have for the Lord is not much. But as you begin to understand how much you've been forgiven and how much grace and mercy has been poured out upon you, your love for Jesus will grow in your life. And that's what we want. 
We want the love that you have for your heavenly father, for your savior. We want the love you have for him to grow and grow and grow in your life. And it may be because you don't realize how much you've been forgiven and how much the cross really means for you. That's what this comeback is all about. It's not about changing your behavior. It's about understanding who we are, becoming the people God wants us to be. And in that, our love for Heavenly Father growing and growing and growing. That is what the comeback is all about. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we talked about a lot of stuff today. And I thank you so much that you've led us to, to engage and continue to think about this, God. I pray, Father, that this prayer of repentance would have been from you, not just from my mind. And I pray, God, that this prayer of repentance would lead us to a place to engage in our sin and engage in the grace and mercy that you show us so that we might actually find victory and, and, def- and, and a victory and we find and defeat the sins that we struggle with in our lives, whether it's pride or, or lusts or envy or slander or gossip or whatever it may be. Father, I pray that today, February 18, 2023, would be a moment that some of us can look back to. And it's like, it was that moment when I began to pray and understood repentance that I actually began to change. And my love for my Heavenly Father began to grow. Lord, Father, move in this place. Holy Spirit, move in this place in the ways that only you can. And may this begin, this new stage of life, this new comeback season of our life. Father, we offer it to you. Change our minds, change our direction, change our lives, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.